from 11FS. I'm Sam Mall, and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up on today's show, big banks in the U.S. are set to make a 20% profit if President Trump's deregulations go ahead. Google and Walmart team up to take on Amazon, and we discuss the impact that online porn has had on digital banking and payments. Welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork London. I'm Sam Mall, and today is my pleasure to be hosting my very first episode of Fintech Insider. Today on the show, I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues, David Brer. Hi, David. Hello. Taking a selfie. Jason Bates. Hey. Drinking a beer. And Simon Taylor. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm good. It's been a very good day, by the way, for 11FS. We're, I think, pretty pumped up right now. I've recently joined. I think I'm in my third week, my first week in London with the team. The one thing I've learned is that music is always on in the office via Alexa. So I'm actually throwing these guys a challenge, which is for each of these stories, you need to give me a song which summarize oh, you the story. Oh, you could have told me. No, it's even better. So I'm going to start. We're going to jump right into the news. The first one is from Bloomberg, which is big U.S. banks could see profit jump 20% with President Trump's deregulation. My song for that is Sympathy for the Devil by Rolling Stones. I think that's incredibly applicable. Seems pretty I'd fitting. For, I'd go for The Boys Are Back in Town. Oh, oh <laughs> positive spin. Wow. Um, well, I do think it's interesting because I think if you go back to what many historians will say was the exact date when the recession started or the Big Depression or whatever you want to call it, I believe it was August 9th, 2007, because I Googled that right before the show. So we are literally 10 years past the world almost imploding, and here we are talking about deregulation and the profits for the major banks. And also what we're talking about is uh, the central banks starting to make noises about, oh, actually, we think that there's a subprime car loan problem and we think there's a subprime private debt issue. So we're building up debt. Okay, it's not in mortgages this time. Mortgages are slightly better than before. But we're building up massive amounts of debt and we're just about to take away all the regulation that we built up during that period. Well, certainly in the US, maybe not in Europe, but it's looking like that could happen. Yeah, great be a profits jump, but at what cost? Well, you, you talk about the U.S. If you take a look at what's happening right now, the second quarter of this year for the U.S., profits were about $48.3 billion. As a matter of fact, when it comes to the S&P 500, from a stock sector, banks were number one. All right, so they're doing okay. Yeah. Despite you know, Dodd-Frank, they're still around. Like, yeah. they're, they're hanging in there. Yeah, you know, and, it, and as President Trump said, you know, you just can't get a loan. You just can't get money. So we need to roll back some of this regulation, which it, it's fairly interesting, you know, from my own perspective. On one hand, we're a consulting firm. Banks are our clients. We would like them to have a little bit more capital to spend, mm-hmm. as, right? I mean, we get that. But yet, again, I'll come back to the profits. It's, it's interesting the banks that they said which would benefit the most from this would be, for example, JPMC which had, I believe, record earnings again this year. So, you know, it's this yin and yang. I think uh, globally, in the past 10 years, banks have paid out 350 million, or 350 billion in fines, right, Chase? Well, but compared, I guess, to Europe, where we're seeing PSD2, we're seeing capped on interchange. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. You know, in the US, it can be still 2% on a, on a debit card charge, where in the, in the UK and Europe, it's down to 0.2%. Right. Uh, and now, now banks in, the, in Europe are being forced to open up with PSD2. But, but 
so on one hand, you can look at regulation and say it's bad for banks in you know in very a variety of ways. But equally, maybe it's not pushing the innovation agenda as it would in Europe because regulations not forcing you know banks and that that infrastructure to to improve. Are you saying that European banks are more innovative? than U.S. Uh, banks? Look, we're five minutes in. Have we got to an and them already? Yes, we have. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd say definitely that European regulators are more progressive than U.S. regulators. And I, and I think there's there's almost like a cause and effect there in terms of that, that, that piece. You know, there's, that's the reason that we're seeing so many different countries, whether it be Singapore, whether it be the U.S., in terms of emulating the things that people like the FCA have actually been doing. But I see that now with the US regulators. The CFTC launched their fintech lab and the OCC talked about um, their innovation outreach program. So I, I think that message has kind of come. But if you think about what the regulation was that made the FCA successful, it was increased competition. It wasn't hit the banks necessarily. There was a bit of that, I'm sure. And, and, and in continental Europe, there's a lot more of that. But the mandate for the UK was increased competition. And that's why we've seen challenger banks. And that's why the regulator has a mandate to increase competition and reach out to fintechs i think we might see a little bit of that in the u.s if they deregulate but deregulation is not a one-size-fits-all thing and when you talked a moment ago about the fact that trump saying you can't get a loan he's speaking to middle america there he's speaking to the small business owner who just can't get a loan but repealing the entirety of dodd frank doesn't help the fact that banks don't want to lend to certain types of businesses well, here's, here's what I find interesting, all right? I mean, and we're generalizing when we talk about this deregulation, okay? Um, you know, if you read the, the, the post by Bloomberg, you know, what we're talking about is all within the regulator's control. This doesn't have to go through Congress. But what I find, and, and again, I, I think you can talk to just about anybody in banking in the U.S., and they said reform is needed, right? It has stifled some growth, right? And and, and there, there is that issue there. But what I find funny is, the projections by the study say that JPMC and Morgan Stanley would benefit the most from these changes. They'd see a net profit increase of 22%, where most of the stymied um, results that we're seeing from the regulation aren't actually with the big banks. They're with the mid-tier and smaller community banks, which have been making the most noise about Dodd-Frank. Mm-hmm. So it is rather interesting that even rolling this back, where you, you don't actually achieve the result you it, wanted. Welcome to the United States. I'm so glad I've joined this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you just need to st- start talking in a like a British accent, Sam. <laughs> like fully commute, that would be fine. You know, yeah, you only did beer. five years here. <laughs> <laughs> not not near enough. I mean, w- within within the confines of 11FS regulations, the regulatory side is needed. We we don't ever argue that, sure. right? Or I need to go back and you know. No, jobs. no. I, th- I think if if anything, it's been the you know the the spark that's actually changed most of what's happening in European banking right now, which is phenomenal. I think what's interesting from a fintech perspective, though, on regulation is that it's not seen. Uh, I think traditionally, there's been something about the uh, the amount of money you can make from customers, the how close to the wind can you sail in order to make the most profits. You know, there's 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 very much been a this is where the line is, and so you know you'll do everything you can. Uh, fintech at its best rises far in excess of the the minimum possible outcome for consumers at least as i sort of envisage it so uh, so there's such a greater alignment with what the regulator is trying to achieve that that it makes a very different conversation and that that's 
definitely not the case in the big banks, is it? You know, like regulation has been the bar of customer experience for like a decade, which is just terrifying, isn't it? And, you know, we see wholesale changes coming forward, like you say, with PSD2. And actually, you know, how many banks are out there who are just doing the bare minimum? You know, I, I kind of believe that there is a still a huge amount of them that aren't looking at the opportunity that they can get from it. And that's going to be the, you know, the, the car crash uh, that they uh, probably weren't expecting. Well, I don't know that car crash is the best segue for the next story, but I'm going to use it to move on. We had a, uh, a story submitted from Fegan. I love that name on our FinTech News. Uh, it's from the BBC that the co-op stake and bank falls to one. <laughs> did I read that right? Co-op stake and bank falls to one percent. Yeah. So the co-op bank has has had an interesting few years. Um, it was originally owned by uh, the Cooperative Society, which, uh, which I think if you asked anyone in the UK, they'd expect to be like this single national business, but it's not. The co-op group is this brand of which there are a number of consumer cooperatives that sit underneath it that provide various services. So you see the, the co-op brand on the high street or on funeral services or on bank or on all kinds of things. And they're different. They're actually different cooperatives. So members of those organisations uh, spend money with that that particular provider and get a um, get a, a a return. They get a dividend. They get a, a share of the profits. It really is a cooperative in that way. And so a bank was formed quite a long time ago in order to create this uh, to provide banking services to these cooperatives. And you know, was a uh, the cooperative society was a bigger owner. They sold off, I think, a few four years ago um, a big chunk and went down to 20% and now they're down to 1% because for a variety of reasons that we've spoken about previously in the in the podcast um, the bank's just been going down for quite a while so five large US hedge funds have uh, put together a 700 million pound rescue package of which they write off 440 million pounds worth of debt and add in 250 million pounds worth of funds this is a very poorly poorly bank isn't it it is. I mean, the co-op, for all of its faults, has 4 million customers still. And they are like stalwart, ethical, you know, people. They're people who see the co-op as being just the ethical bank on the high street. And now it's 99% owned by US hedge funds. So the question is, you know, do does the actions of the bank, do, do its new owners in, in all but that 1%, change that does does that change in any way it's kind of like your whole foods trader joe customer had a bank right it, it's this like slightly upmarket, slightly organic brand that now suddenly is distressed because it i mean there was a comedy of errors in the management over the past couple of years uh, and they've really really struggled to turn a profit and you can see that co-op who are who are very protective of this brand they've built up over the, over many years are now kind of pulling back and pulling back it's interesting that when hedge funds come in and, and treat it so Somewhat like a private equity purchase, they're sort of saying we can turn this round, we can turn it to profitability. But there's a huge discount there, and it's interesting that, um, as you were saying about the financial crisis uh, and the regulations that followed it, it wasn't necessarily the big banks that have disappeared; it's some of the smaller ones. Okay. This is an example of that. This is an example where that mid-tier bank. I mean, if you compare the size of four million customers, it would be like a medium-sized Midwestern bank, I guess. This is something where. There are customers out there, as Jason said, that could potentially lose services, change services. What's their future look like? 
I think it's it's really interesting, and, and maybe just to continue your song game going a little bit, can I suggest Snoop Dogg drop it like it's hot on, oh, wow. on this one? That's uh, better than Lee Greenwood's I'm Proud to Be an American. It uh, f- f- feels like sort of fitting on this one. But but sort of, I, I guess the, the there's been a lot of things sort of made recently about, you know, the outages that somebody like Monzo's actually had, and actually the, the level of um, customer loyalty that you're actually seeing. Like all of the things that have happened, to your point, you know, this is millions of customers who have gone through all of these these changes, seen all of this stuff happen, all of the problems that the bank have had, and they're still sticking by that brand. You know, like that is a that is a true brand that people buy into the principles of. Are these and apologies because I don't know, are these urban customers or more they do you're nodding. See I'm surprised by that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, young urban professionals and yeah. up to sort of uh, your middle class um, white collar worker who uh, lives in the suburbs, and then you get uh, quite a few of these in villages and towns. It's it's kind of everything from young professional through to to that white collar uh, suburban. Okay. But but traditionally, co op did everything right. Like they like cradle to grave. Like those guys will <laughs> literally bury you, not not in debt. Like the you know not that wasn't a go at the bank. I'm no, just saying it was just, service. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, like they literally will bury. <laughs> You, you know? And my stepdad was an embalmer for the cooperative funeral service. Now that is something I did not know. Wow. <laughs> FinTech Insider trivia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the thing that I'm I'm fascinated with at the moment is the uh, is this member base proposition. You know, building societies, credit unions. Like if ever there was a time where it just seems to fit, now is it? You know, crowdfunding, ICOs, everything seems to be moving to that peer to peer peer-owned thing yet building societies credit unions the co-op seems so old-fashioned and also the the products that they've arguably launched have been very banky Mm. but but is that not the so they they generated a community you know like i i can uh, remember in uh, yorkshire where i'm from despite the accent um, but the the idea that the the community was galvanized around a a central point which was the co-op in various different guises whether it be you know your funeral or whether it be your bank account whatever um but is that not the role that actually a lot of the challenger banks coming into the UK are actually fulfilling now? You know, could we not argue that something like a Monzo is actually kind of a community bank now in terms of what it's doing because of how it's approaching developing that community and making people sort of galvanised around a thought? And that thought could be, you know, making banking better or it could be that we're rewarding our community and coming, like Simon has both hands up. I think he has a point. Yes, we're all dying on this one. Uh, so um, Seth Godin talks about tribes, the, the author. We now subscribe to a tribe it doesn't matter where you live in the world if you like uh, stripy hats you find the stripy hats tribe if you like goths you find the goth tribe there's and a stripy hats tribe th- th- there needs to be people like Kat <laughs> the Hartman. You, you need to you need to get with dr seuss uh so but you can find your tribe and monzo have found their tribe i believe but they've done it in a digital way and it doesn't matter where you live in the world you can find your tribe uh, and so that old community being physically based is moving into a digital community but it's the same idea so how do you transform those old ideas and put them in a new context i think is super interesting but it's not unique to the to the uk i mean cross river bank in the us um, as a credit union have been doing some interesting things sam well i mean it, i i bank with my local credit union which is fascinating when you think about the clients that i deal with right and yet my money's with my local credit union go figure which I think there's a whole other show, by the way, that we need to dive into. Let's move on to our next story, though, because um, there's so many good ones today. This one, I, I love the community. We're talking about community. The community that we have with 11FS, I love the Crispy Noodle. Best name ever submitted this story. 
Barclays now lets customers make payments via, via Surrey. I personally came up with the best song for this, but you know what, Simon, I'll throw it to you. Yeah, I didn't have a song name in in, in mind. I, Say my name. Yeah, Destiny's, Destiny's Child. Child. Yeah. <laughs> that is good. That is good. like there's a whole authorization process there. With, with I'm pretty sure Beyonce didn't think about it. Didn't she? <laughs> so, but. She's clever. I disagree. Yeah. Well, anyways, I like this story. The core of this is accessibility, right? So Siri and voice has been the thing we've been playing with for for some time. Will will your Amazon Echo, will your uh, Google Home, will all of these devices become the way in which you interface with financial services and any other consumer company in the future? Good question. Uh, But actually, this is not trying to be that, and I respect it for not trying to be that. Barclays have actually said... If you want to make payments via your mobile app or directly into Siri, you now can. You can talk to Siri from an accessibility standpoint. If I have, uh, if I'm visually impaired in any way, and I, but I'm running my phone through Siri to be able to make a payment to somebody I know. Yes, it has to be pre-configured, but I, I can get help from branch staff to get that done. I think this is spot on with what a, a bank that has done things like digital eagles and really helped people with technology can really do. This is a, a fantastic example. I do. I want to make a, a secondary point um a secondary point hold on hold on like when did we get into secondary points we can we can stick a pin in this one I'm, <laughs> a pin in it um i do think there's something to be said about how you do voice right now this is doing voice right for a niche and they've done it right but i would say that there's something about getting the voice interface right and there's a whole discussion there that needs to be had at some point is that but, a commentary on siri or just commentary I struggle with Siri. Uh, it's, a, it's a commentary on the imagination going into how you create the conversation with a customer. So Jason always talks about real-time intelligent contextual. So if you know that my paycheck is about to arrive, why not tell me that through my voice interface rather than just a no- notification? And would you like to do this now? And I answer simply, yes, I authorize this. That prov- uh, It's almost that people have expected us to go to the machine and tell it to do a thing, not that the machine would say to us whilst we're at home in a context of being at home that you could do this thing now so i think there's something about con- contextual use of voice that's really missing but, but but not in this case they've done it right for the niche they've done it for right but we, we talked about this earlier today jason where using older models for new technology because i remember the first time i saw capital one playing around with using alexa to make payments and you were still using a pin you're still using some sort of phrase which i love because you're standing saying quite loudly alexa Zero zero five one. Sorry if we've set off your echo, everyone. Yeah, exactly. Michael's going to have to bleep all of these out, (laughs) isn't he? Like, yeah. But yeah, the thing that I love most about this is that Barclays have got out there and tried it. I mean, they've actually made it work. What's the use case? What's it for? You know, how will it work? You know, in in a small way, they've gone out there and and put it put it out there. Will a is that particular device the best way in order to make payments? We don't know, but we're, we're finding a voice for it. Um, on the accessibility, oh, it's my secondary point. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> on the, Jason's uh, getting good at mocking me today. <laughs> on the uh, accessibility viewpoint, um, I, I did a tweet earlier in the week to the uh, Royal National Institute for the Blind, the I, d- I did a tweet. I did Jason a tweet. tweets, people. I did a tweet, people, um, about because I think that banking for the blind and partially sighted is a perfect PSD2 use case. 
So I really think there's an interesting thing there with pulling a group of people together, putting an interface together in association with people who are expert in in those areas that then use APIs in order to deliver like best in class interfaces for particular groups of people. So if you're interested in that, tweet me people. I'm, I'm making that happen. All right, let's 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 move on to our next story. This one's from Finextra. It was submitted by Andrew Earl. TransferWise lines up investment round. So I'll give you this song, NWA, Don't Believe the Hype, maybe. All right, so, tr- like, I love the song, like, NWA, Don't Believe the Hype, but actually, like, on the basis that these guys are, this is going to be pushing their valuation up to, what is it, 1.5 mm-hmm. billion? Like, this is, like, serious unicorn territory right now. So, like, actually, the idea that TransferWise is actually gaining more money. I guess, I guess the thing that I'm a little bit, and, you know, I kind of punish a lot sort of mainstream banks who basically go out and say they've got a bunch of money and what that not really what they're doing with it. And this seems to be sort of a reasonable sort of consistent case with a lot of the fintechs that are coming through. So TransferWise gaining an extra $60 million what are they doing with that? I think that's yes. lazy headline writing because we've talked um, previously in previous episodes about all the things TransferWise are doing. They're launching the multi-currency account. They're trying to become a bank. They're, they're pushing into small businesses. Like all of those steps, you can see why they started with consumers. They got a use case that worked. It wasn't very profitable, but it gained critical mass adoption. And you know, they have partners with N26, so they have a partnership model. And on the other hand, that's solving problems for small businesses around international accounts and being a bank and 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 could get there but yes this this what are they going to do next is an interesting question yeah i mean i think the industry have seen TransferWise as a marketing organization predominantly that's the thing that they've that they've just nailed though Done i mean very, they just very nailed well. it so you know and and we, the amazing come on, thing we can't have a go at people for being good at marketing no no i'm not it's, it's like, like a thing they've right? been it's been awesome that, that they built a business arguably on on rails that through APIs you could you know make cross-border payments with whether that's currency cloud or Earthport, a variety of other players um, to uh, to build the brand and you know unicorn status off the back of that and I know that they've got a great engineering team now they've really built off the back of that um, but in order to to take that which is a, a tough market to be in it's very competitive across the world with Western Union and other, and, and other players and now to actually be expanding to arguably take on HSBC and City in multi-country you know the acceptance of payments and multi-country accounts and now becoming a bank and now becoming this and you know that that's amazing and 60 million off a you know one point something billion valuation that, that's nothing it's not I mean, a big equity giveaway is it no. like they've, they've not sacrificed a lot of the company to do that and i think also they gave the banks a bloody nose with the marketing and they're still here i think there's something to be said for that but have they not done a push to try to partner more and more with banks did i not read that the, the, so they they are customers of some of the world's largest banks because if you're going to move money around you have to be a customer of the bank the old argument was they are vc funded arbitrage in other words the vc is subsidizing the cost of these transactions because they're not very profitable but the second part of that is that may be true however they're now looking at one scale so if their margins are thinner can they scale and can they go global and two if their margins are thinner, can they move into use that platform to move into other more profitable businesses like small businesses and so on? And that, like you say, it's that's the pivot. You know, like they're pivoting into how do they distribute international transfers through things like current accounts, which totally makes sense. But I, I remember sitting on the steps of the Royal Exchange near Bank and watching Christo and the guys like plant a massive tea in the ground that broke all of the payment and just being like 
these guys get marketing. Like yeah. these guys, like really get marketing. And they were uh, in their pants too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, uh, underwear for the. It was 40% a. It was listeners. a. Yeah, it was a. It was a cold September day, and they like just like they did it, and they got like, and the press was crazy off it. So you know, I think making a splash and getting to like congratulations, guys. Like we should say, actually, there's a, a takeover show that's going to be happening with Transferwise soon. So I guess these are all good questions we can ask to them. I guess lost lost on that the one of my. Couldn't you believe I actually have a favourite blog on remittances? <laughs> Man, that says a lot about you, doesn't it? <laughs> Sorry, that made me laugh an unreasonable Every amount, but that's yeah. so Jason, it's unbelievable. It's in a Google Doc. Saveonsend.com. Go and have a look on saveonsend.com. They have like breakdowns and teardowns and looking at the business model. It's like, it's, it's really cool. You're my favourite kind of weird. Dude. <laughs> uh, that's a good quote. You need to write that one down. All right, speaking of global, speaking of press and media. We are, our next story is from a, a, a press that I read every day, the South China Morning Post. It's fantastic. This one is submitted by Fegan. Jack Ma, which this is already a great story because it's got Jack Ma. Alibaba it. does a thing. Right. They, they, there's a financial unit has bought Mass Mutual for U.S. of $1.7 billion. Yeah, thanks to Gary for, for submitting quite a few stories this week. That's on uh, fintechinsidernews.com, where we talk about these things and also submit a lot of the stories. Um, so, yes, Jack Ma backed Yung Feng Financial, which essentially caters to the wealthier individuals uh, and has been broadening its reach uh, recently. Uh, they made a robo-advisor and they managed the wealth of sort of Chinese Hong Kong investors. And they agreed to buy an Asian unit of... Massachusetts Mutual Life, which I don't know if you uh, you know, Sam, um, uh, which adds offerings like death benefits and annuities. And I think there's a couple of things that interest me here. One, like Chinese company buying U.S. infrastructure, U.S. you know financial services, interesting. Um, and but secondly, also this, um, uh, I think there's something about these new contexts that are emerging because on one hand Jack Ma owns you know Alibaba Alipay there's that whole sort of transactional everyday banking side on the other hand he's put a lot of money into a into a different firm that handles the wealth benefits